0: and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Live podcast. This is our third episode in the series discussing Dr. King's leadership in the civil rights movement, but most specifically in his iconic and very historically important letter from Birmingham Jail. Next episode, we will extend our discussion of King to the origins of his story. Um, In Dr. King's speech to America from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, he said this, In a sense, we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our great republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this promissory note was again revisited during the days of Abraham Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation and then the Gettysburg Address in 1863. And next week, we will discuss this great address, which um, Dr. King recalls, occurred 100 years before his day, in the day that he was in Birmingham jail.
0: Well, when we look back through the lens of history and and look at it that way, we can see that a lot happened very quickly after those eight days in the Birmingham jail until Dr. King would make those very remarks on the step of the Lincoln Memorial. It was August of that summer that he would stand, as he would say, in the symbolic shadow of President Lincoln. And there he would open the eyes of millions watching the address and talk to them about his dream, a dream that they too would share uh, after listening to those words or reading those words that we still read today. That same year, 1963, he would also be propelled in December to be recognized significantly across the Atlantic in Oslo, Norway. On December 4, 1964, Dr. King stood in front of the largest crowds to ever jam into Festival Hall of Oslo University. Hundreds of students who couldn't get into the hall waited outside and were shouting, Freedom now, and we shall overcome, as they watched Dr. King with his wife Coretta enter to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. As Dr. King began his acceptance speech, something we can all still watch today if you go to the Nobel Prize website, he can be heard audibly choking up as he utters these words: "The torturous road which has led from Montgomery, Alabama, to Oslo."
1: And it was torturous. And what you described there was the international impact of the speech. You just that cannot be overlooked. Okay. Uh, anyway, and it, it led through uh, other places, among them Atlanta, Georgia, and Selma, uh, and Birmingham, and Alabama. Today, we will finish reading paragraphs 27 through 50, or the second half of the letter. But before we do, we need to tell the story of the amazing events that were to happen after Dr. King gets out of jail. And Remember, after eight days, both Reverend Abernathy and Dr. King were bailed out. Uh, immediately after being released dr king assembled his team and made the extremely controversial decision to enlist even more teenagers and children you know up to this point they had included students but uh, now they were going to recruit even more and of course this caused protests from every corner of the political spectrum and to some it seemed cruel and unnecessary many both uh, white as well as African-Americans accused King of using the children. And in his book, Why We Can't Wait, King recalls one incident of a child who was eight years old, who was marching alongside his mother. A policeman looked down at the child and asked him mockingly, what do you want? To which the child, really even unable to pronounce the letter R, responded, freedom.
0: Oh, it's so cute. If
1: <laughs> if this moment wasn't for the future, for the children, from Dr. King's perspective, then, you know, really what was even the point? Uh, the day would be called D-Day, of course, borrowing the language used by the followers of the movement from their days in World War II, when it was not even 20 years before.
0: Well, ex- except in this case, instead of descending on the banks of Normandy, France, D-Day meant Ditch Day, as in Ditch School Day. (laughs) That date would be May 2nd. The numbers vary, of course, depending from source to source, and nobody really knows to the number exactly how many children uh, participated because it was all spread word of mouth, but around or maybe even more than 4,000 children ditched school to march. And they demonstrated over a fourth of them, by the way, would end up in jail.
1: Yes, and the next day more would join their ranks, and it wasn't long before twenty five hundred children were jailed. Um, and these students would would demonstrate in schools. They walked defiantly into libraries they were not legally allowed to enter, and they sat down in them. And they marched without a permit, and they also got arrested. And Per uh, Bull connors direct orders, they were hosed down with massive fire hoses, and it got ridiculous in the scope and size of it. You know, students were singing freedom as the force of water knocked them to the ground, and the police literally had to rent school buses to haul the children to jail. But, There's some
0: irony. <laughs> yes.
1: But undeterred, the nonviolent campaign continued until it worked And on May four. Uh, there were newspapers all over the country and even across the world with the pictures of the men and women and children laying on the ground and, you know, police bending over them with clubs. It had gone international.
0: Well, it was going to get worse. Bull Connor very famously ordered police dogs out along with these hoses that were uh, that were already hosing people down, but now they were going to attack the marchers. bull Connor pressed and pressed so far that at some points even his own police force refused to enforce these vicious policies marching into these onslaughts of crowd innocent you know nonviolent crowds.
1: And one comment I would like to say about all that and all the pictures, this ends up being the major news item in Soviet television for weeks. And the, the Soviets were using it to tell the rest of the Eastern Bloc world you know, how terrible it is in the United States. So the, the propaganda value was enormous and worldwide. Bull Connor, along with the world all the way to the Soviet Union, could feel the reality that the days of the segregated world were over and By May eighth, a moratorium had been issued in Birmingham, Birmingham would begin the process of desegregation and The more the leadership of Birmingham submitted to the tension you know to use dr king 's word as he uses in his letter. And the more they were willing to negotiate, the more dangerous things got for Dr. King and the other leaders. A bomb was planted near the Gaston Motel the day after the integration plan was announced. This motel had been the center of operations for Project C, as well as where Dr. King was staying. And his brother's home, the Reverend A.D. King, was bombed. But the determination of the African-American community in Birmingham really only increased. And segregation was dying, and everyone knew this. And the question was, what kind of damage would be caused on its way out the door?
0: And, of course, again, looking back through the lens of history, we know the answer to that question. It culminated, really, on September fifteenth, 1963. Five young girls were in the basement of the church before Sunday morning services. They were excited and talking about Youth Day because they were going to get to be a part of the big church services. A bomb went off. Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley were killed. Addie's sister, Sarah, survived, but she lost her right eye. Dr. King would send a telegram to Governor Wallace, stating, and I quote, the blood of our little children is on your hands. It would not be until 2002 that the last of these four bombers would be convicted for his part in this brutal murder.
1: And by the time of the September bombings, um, Dr. King's letter had circulated across the country. The March on Washington had already occurred on August 28th, and it astounded the world with the sheer volume of people who showed up to hear Dr. King speak. And Dr. King looked out across that crowd, and as he recalls, he knew the world was changing because he was not only looking at African-American faces, there were faces of every color that God had created in the crowd. And he was looking at American faces. And um, with Abraham Lincoln behind him, Dr. King spoke to the world of a dream where he envisioned a world where he famously said, and I quote, my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character.
0: It was a vision most of America was willing and ready to embrace but those who were opposed would do so violently to the end. And as we think about the links those that opposed him were willing to go, it is more amazing than ever that Dr. King always insisted on a path of loving his enemies. It's also amazing that he's the one who's been called the extremist. With that in mind, let's jump back into the letter where we le- la- left off last episode and let's begin reading. Paragraphs 27 through 30.
1: You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. I began thinking about the fact that standing in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community, one is a force of complacency made up in part of Negroes who, as a result of long years of oppression, are so drained of self-respect and a sense of somebody that they've adjusted to segregation, and in part of a few middle-class Negroes who, because of a degree of academic and economic security, and because in some ways they profit by segregation, have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred, and it comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up across the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim Movement. Nourished by the Negro's frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination, this movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. I had tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need emulate each other the do nothingism of the complacent, nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalist. For there is the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I'm grateful to God that through the influence of the Negro church, the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. If this philosophy had not emerged, by now many streets of the South would, I am convinced, be flowing with blood. And I am further convinced that if our white brothers dismiss as rebel rousers and outside agitators... Those of us who employ nonviolent direct action, and if they refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, millions of Negroes will, out of frustration and despair, seek solace and security in black nationalist ideologies, a development that would inevitably lead to a frightening racial nightmare. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself, and that is what has happened to the American Negro. Something within him has reminded him of his birthright of freedom, and of something without has reminded him that it can be gained. Consciously or unconsciously, he is being caught up by the zeitgeist, and with his black brothers of Africa and his brown and yellow brothers of Asia, South America, and the Caribbean, the United States Negro is moving with a sense of great urgency toward the promised land of racial justice. If one recognizes this vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community, one should really understand why public demonstrations are taking place. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations, and he must release them. So let him march. Let him make prayer pilgrimages to the city hall. Let him go on freedom rides and try to understand why he must do so. If his repressed emotions are not released in nonviolent ways, they will seek expression through violence." This is not a threat, but a fact of history. I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action, and now this approach is being termed extremist.
0: Well, remember, he's addressing clergymen who directly accused him of being too extreme, And in these paragraphs, he absolutely cautions these accusers. His path is the middle way, and he's not threatening. But he's saying that if the middle way is rejected, blood, and it's not going to be on me, blood will definitely run in the streets.
1: True. So on the one hand, he will say, I'm definitely the one on the moderate path here. But on the flip side, he does want to reiterate that even if he really were an extremist, That wouldn't really be a bad thing. Extremism at times is not really only very American, it's also very Christian. Uh, To support this claim, he cites the names of all kinds of American and Christian heroes who have been exactly that in their day. They had been extreme. And uh, Christy, read that famous paragraph 31, which is full of allusion um, after allusion to the heroes of Christian and American history. uh, we'll skip paragraphs 32 and 35 for time's sake. But in those paragraphs, he extends the list of heroes beyond just the past, but really into the present moment. And he cites name after name and honoring the white activists after white activists who not only supported the movement in the South, but have been jailed for it. And you know, these uh, men and women, not the ministers writing him, were on the spiritual moral high ground. And he then takes off his hat as historian and he puts back on his hat as a preacher with the authority of uh, his doctorate in theology. Uh, he knows his Bible, but he's also a doer of the word and not just a speaker of it. And he chastises the white minister for their lack of political involvement. And again, this is an area of where many Christians simply do not agree. Where is the role of the church when it comes to politics? And uh, many ministers agree that the church and state should be totally separate Dr. King completely disagrees with that view. Uh, So let's read his view on the topic of a Christian minister and whether or not he should engage in politics.
0: All right. First, paragraph 31, he says this. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray with them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the ends of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. Notice how he's reciting all this from memory. memory. Yeah. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive, half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will be extremists for hate or for love? will be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice. In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime. The crime was extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, And goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. And then, of course, after talking about the people that you mentioned, he goes on to talk about uh, how this applies to his political moment, starting in, in paragraph 37. I have heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it is the law. I have longed to hear white ministers declare, Follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard many ministers say, quote, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern, quote. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange on biblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama and Mississippi and all over the other southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, and I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointed heavenly. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Where is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists.
1: Wow. Well, um, you know, Doctor Keith's perspective is entirely understandable. It's it's really also understandable why many and uh, perhaps the majority of Christian ministers today are extremely hesitant to get involved in politics and, in fact, take a firm stand. You know, that is not their role to do so uh, for many reasons and many reasons that are historical. And uh, you know, what is the role that religion should play in politics? the The American position has always been that church and state are separate that God does not have a political party and the church should never tell a person how to vote or engage politically. You know, In other words, the traditional American position is that uh, an American should be able to be a Christian Democrat or a Christian Republican or a Christian socialist or a Christian libertarian. I mean, you can be a Christian and engage in any number of ways politically. He seems to be really supporting that.
0: True, but having said that, the point that Dr. King can't let up is that one's faith absolutely has to inform one's politics. Uh, Perhaps the church should not tell you exactly what candidate you should vote for, but a practicing Christian with a practicing faith, that defines one's morality. And it provides definitions for what is right and for what is wrong and what is good and what is evil. And of course, there's room for disagreement. And there is no end to the different denominations and sects of all the versions of Christianity and and Judaism, but there are also many commonalities that these faiths share. And these are the shared common values that Dr. King is wondering where these ministers fall when they don't seem to support it. On some things, there isn't room for disagreement, Dr. King reminds these ministers that they share with him the value of human life as given to us by a holy God, the nobility of the human soul, the God-given gift of freedom of choice. These are not things that are debated between African American and white Christian churches. The heritage of America itself is grounded on the idea that it is the will of God that all men live in freedom and equality. So for the king, these values are embedded in the Christian gospel. When we read his political argument in direct reference to the church, it's easy to see how he postures himself in the face of the current political moment. Let's look at paragraphs uh, 42 through 44.
1: But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church is turned into outright disgust. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as the true ecclesia and the hope of the world. But again, I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregations and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia with us. They have gone down the highways of the South on torturous rides for freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail with us. And some have been dismissed from their churches, have lost the support of their bishops and fellow ministers, but they have acted in the faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of American freedom Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson etched the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence across the pages of history, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored in this country without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters while suffering gross injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to thrive and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands.
0: Well, you can see clearly, his hope is the church. And for those without an understanding of Christianity, it may be difficult to follow his logic here, but he sees the church as older than the state of America. Uh, That's clear. His hope is not in the state. In fact, I love how he finishes because his grand finale, so to speak, the outrage of the outrage will come as he discusses the unsolicited police violence of the state. The clergy actually commended Bull Connor's police force. Let's hear his response to that in paragraphs 45 and 46.
1: Before closing, I feel impelled to mention one other point in your statement that has troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham police force for keeping order and preventing violence. I doubt that you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its dogs sinking their teeth into unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I doubt that you would so quickly commend the policemen if you were to observe their ugly and inhumane treatment of Negroes here in the city jail, if you were to watch them push and curse old Negro women and young Negro girls, if you were to see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys, if you were to observe them as they did on two occasions, refuse to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together, I cannot join you in your praise of the Birmingham Police Department. It is true that the police have exercised a degree of discipline in handling the demonstrators, In this sense, they have conducted themselves rather non-violently in public. But for what purpose? To preserve the evil system of segregation. Over the past few years, I have consistently preached that non-violence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends that we seek. I have tried to make clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it is just as wrong, or perhaps even more so, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. Perhaps Mr. Connor and his policemen have been rather nonviolent in public, as was Chief Pritchard in Albany, but they have used the moral means of nonviolence to maintain the immoral end of racial injustice. As T.S. Eliot has said, the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason.
0: Well, I find it interesting that he absolutely contradicts the moral relativism of many, maybe even most political leaders. It's certainly the natural order of politicians that was exposed to us through Niccolo Machiavelli back in, you know, the 1500s. Machiavelli suggested that in politics, morality is relative, that the ends justifies the means. Every student of political science studies this in their very first political science class. Heck, most high school students will study the same thing, if not in their history class, in their English one.
1: Well, and yet Dr. King uh, takes Machiavelli to task. Um, He says to use moral means for immoral ends is wrong, and he also quotes T.S. Eliot by saying to do the right deed for the wrong reason is treason, which, by the way, uh, people are always using that quote of Eliot's, you know, where does that come from? (laughs)
0: Well, it comes from Murder in the Cathedral. That's a play about the assassination of Archbishop Thomas Beckett, ironically. But the final paragraphs of his letter look to the future. He speaks of James Meredith. Gary, before we read these final paragraphs, tell us who is James Meredith.
1: In the fall of 1962, uh, the year before the Birmingham marches, James Meredith tried to enroll in the University of Mississippi. and Around here, we call it Old Miss. Um, it 's just a little over an hour south of Memphis, and uh, James Meredith was not a teenager; he had served honorably in the Air Force in Japan for nine years. He was married uh, because of his admission. Riots broke out, and hundreds were wounded, and two even died. Eventually, President Kennedy had to call out thirty one thousand national guardsmen <laughs> to enforce the order that Meredith would be permitted into the university and the armed forces would occupy the university town of Oxford for 10 months. And the end of the story for Meredith uh, is good. He eventually graduated from Columbia University with a law degree and enjoyed uh, an important law career. But at the time of this letter, again, you know, the future was not certain. Dr. King was a visionary. And we see that at the end of this letter, and we'll see it again in the dream speech, he could see an integrated world and through the power of his voice, his willingness of rhetoric. Uh, So can the rest of us, but Christy, let's read to the end how he finishes that.
0: I wish you had commended the Negro sit-inners and the demonstrators of Birmingham for their sublime courage, their willingness to suffer, and their amazing discipline in the midst of great provocation. One day the South will recognize its real heroes. They will be the James Merediths the noble sense of purpose that enables them to face jeering and the hostile mobs and with the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the pioneer. They will be old, depressed, battered Negro women symbolized in a 72-year-old woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride segregated buses and who responded with ungrammatical profundity to the one who inquired about her weariness. My feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. They will be the young high school and college students, the young ministers of the gospel, and a host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting in a lunch counter and willingly going to jail for consciousness' sake. One day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality Standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Never before have I written so long a letter I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he alone is in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters? Think long thoughts and pray long prayers. I hope you can hear the sarcasm there. (laughs) If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother." Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities, and in some not-too-distant future, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr.
1: Dr. King's Righteous indignation really surfaces at the end. and uh, We can see his disappointment, but we can also see that he doesn't despair. And what is more miraculous, um, he's still believing in forgiveness. The final sentence of this letter speaks of the radiant stars of love and brotherhood. You know, the Civil Rights Act in 1964 would be one year away. Uh, it was the nation's premier civil rights legislation. And The act outlawed discrimination on the basis of race and color and religion and sex and national origin. It required equal access to public spaces and uh, employment, and it enforced desegregation of schools, and it guaranteed the right to vote. And of course, it did not end discrimination. Uh, Dr. King knew that only love and forgiveness could do that, but it did open the door to further progress.
0: Well, and of course, his words continue to speak words of love brotherhood and forgiveness and as we pointed out and he said this from the beginning of his career when he was 26 years old in those early bitter days in montgomery he said that the message would not change brotherhood and healing starts with anger but it ends with love wow
1: well, thank you for listening. Uh, we do have one more episode in this journey through American political discourse. And next week, we will visit the battlefield of Gettysburg with President Lincoln and the context of the Gettysburg Address. and After that, we will uh, change directions completely and explore the mysteries of Agatha Christie. She's always a lot of fun. As always, please feel free uh, to connect with us however you communicate. Email, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And most importantly, share an episode with a friend. It's through the word of mouth that we grow. Thank you for your support.
0: Peace out.